The third faculty member interviewed prior to the ASBS conference was Dr. Charles Geyer, who began our conversation by commenting on the case he wanted to present at the symposium, a 49-year-old woman with a 0.8 sonometer grade 2 infiltrating ductal cancer, which was strongly ER and PR positive and HER2 negative with seven negative sentinel nodes. Complicating the picture was a prior cerebrovascular episode several years previously that resolved with the patient being maintained on chronic anticoagulation. Dr. Geyer began by commenting on this patient's perspective on her tumor. She's kind of one of these, you know, typical, I guess to me, a professional sort of in control, wanting to be in control and coming across, we can control this, I just need to understand it, give me the stuff so I can make a decision. She did not want chemotherapy. She came in concerned about chemotherapy and was needing to be convinced it was necessary and a pretty substantial benefit. Was she the kind of person who was out there on the web trying to get information, or was she sort of leaving things up to you? What was her attitude in that respect? I didn't get a sense that she was really looking for other sources particularly. She did want a lot of information. She wanted to understand what I was talking about, what we were recommending. But I don't know that if she went and got a second opinion, she didn't you know, express that or route that through us. I think had I insisted that she get chemotherapy, she would have sought second opinions. I think partly I was telling her what she wanted to hear, quite frankly, in that sense. I mean, if now that you're asking me, I really hadn't thought about it. But had I pushed the chemotherapy and that sort of stuff, she might have... Basically, where we left it was, as I'm recalling from her recurrence score, there was a possibility of absolute three, four percent benefit. And she said, even if that's there, I wouldn't take the chemo. So that's why she getting to the Taylor trial, you know, the trial is basically trying to find out is that there or not. And she said, I don't care if it is, I still wouldn't take it. So in her case, she mainly got it because she did understand a high recurrence score. She really didn't have a functional choice. You think if she had a high recurrence score, she would have gone ahead with chemotherapy? Yeah. And the fact that she had an intermediate score, from her point of view... That was sufficient. It got the potential benefits, at best, down to a range that she didn't feel like they were warranted, even if that's what they really were. So you actually discussed the Taylor X trial with her? Oh, yeah. And recommended that she go in it, or just brought it up as an... No, I mean, the way I go at that is, basically, when I have a node-negative hormone receptor-positive breast cancer patient that is appropriate, I think, for the oncotype assay. I explain the assay and the relative certainty around the ends that high recurrence score patients really need chemotherapy, very low end don't. And I explain now in the intermediate area, we don't know as evidenced by the clinical trial that we're trying to do. So we have coverage for oncotype DX in Pittsburgh. And so I've incorporated it into my practice and I really just talk to women about Taylor who would be eligible. When you say who would be eligible, you just with intermediate scores? For the, eligible for the randomization. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that there is going to be some selectivity in who goes into this study. And to me, that seems fine. Well, because that's the critical randomization, really, from right. the primary endpoint. You need 4,300 women going into that group. There were assumptions made about when the study was opened, patients could 
have the assay run if they agreed to the randomization, if they got that result. And that was useful for places who didn't have the assay readily available in routine clinical practice. Joe Sperano sent me some updated information from ECOG on the accrual getting ready for our, the meeting we just had. And what he sent me, it looks like about 70% of the patients that are entering the study are in that primary group. and They're the, going to get randomized. Yeah, the randomized group. And the, statistically, if you took all comers, it was estimated that they would make up about 45% of patients. So clearly, I'm not the only one. Sure, makes sense. Thinking that way. Right. And I guess also people are going to be selected within the intermediate range. I think so. Obviously, the patient and doc have to have equipoise about that Mm -hmm. randomization. And it's really amazing to try to attempt a trial like this. And it's been a long time since we've done a chemo versus no chemo randomization in breast cancer. And the accrual has surged in the last six months. I mean, it really has jumped up very nicely. So physicians are engaged and interested and are getting patients agreeing to the randomization. Well, the other thing that's going to be interesting to me, I mean, actually, I personally love the idea of just being able to reliably do a prospective study see what's happening, maybe even come up with future assays that you can go back and do when these patients, just like you do with the Oncotype. One aspect, too, about the recurrent score that I don't think has really been talked about quite as much, and probably, frankly, that's because we haven't got the manuscript published yet, relates to what the apparent benefit from hormone therapy is in women with high recurrence score ER-positive breast cancer. Interesting. Because it really doesn't look like they get much out of tamoxifen. And so it really looks, for those women, to me, they seem to be the subset of women where even though they are categorized as hormone receptor positive, they don't seem to behave that way in terms of their response to chemotherapy or their response, at least to tamoxifen. Now, obviously, some people will say, well, maybe aromatase inhibitor, you'd see a different story. But when you look at the benefits of tamoxifen, we were able to do that on B14 since we had the placebo and the tamoxifen patients. When you look at the curves visually, there's clear benefits for low-risk, intermediate and they're just on top of each other for the high recurrence score. The test for interaction didn't quite reach statistical significance, very strong trend, but visually it's there. And, you know, I don't think people should take that as meaning there is no benefit of hormone therapy, but it means that those women, when they may think, well, I don't want the chemo, I'll get some from hormone, that hormone therapy may not be delivering as much as it does on average in the broad ER-positive population. That's a great point. I assume it's kind of like the situation in patients with HER2-positive tumors that we know when they're ER-positive, usually the actual quantitative amount of ER is fairly low, even though it's positive. And I think with the high recurrence score, it's the same thing. The quantitative ER is generally going to be low. Is that the case? Still high, but low. Yeah, it's interesting when the B20 manuscript has some very nice graphic representation of how there are trends towards that, but it is not uniform. There are clearly discordant cases, which I think speaks to the strength of the oncotype because it emphasizes that this really is giving new information that you just can't get. Broadly speaking, yeah, you see if the real high ER levels, the number of lower recurrent score patients is a bit higher than the converse, but it's not as striking as one would think. 
One more question about this. I was kind of surprised when I saw, I think it was a press release or something about the so-called print assay, which I guess is now available in the United States. And there's going to be a trial. Martin Picard, I think, and others are involved with looking at evaluating print. What exactly is it? And is it sort of ready for clinical use in your view? Well, print requires frozen specimens. So to use it, you have to alter your practice And it was developed to dichotomize patients into low-risk, high-risk, with the idea being that low-risk group patients would not need any therapy. These studies were done on mixed populations, ER positive, ER negatives. Even the low-risk group, when you look, they do have recurrences 10% or so. So there's certainly patients that you would still give hormonal therapy to. There was an interesting study that was run by the folks at North Carolina that they tried to compare all these prognostic assays. It was published in the New England Journal. Charles Peru and his group. Yeah, his group. And the interesting thing about the print and the recurrence score is apparently there's just one gene that overlaps. But yet when they looked at them head-to-head, they tracked very, very closely, had a high correlation. And so I personally don't see what it has to offer that the oncotype doesn't already provide. And the oncotype is something that can be done on paraffin. So you don't have to alter your practice patterns. And with the print, if you're going to do it, you have to do it on every patient. You have to collect it, whether you know their nodal status, their hormone receptor status, HER2 status, you've got to collect it and send it. So you're getting information there that you won't want to use. At least with the oncotype, you can wait and find out what is the HER2 status, because if they're HER2 amplified, you really don't need the oncotype. High-grade patients, arguably, the oncotype might not be as useful for making that decision in them. So you can limit the number of patients where you spend the money on the assay to those where it will make a difference in care, which I think we really need to try to do. Let's talk a little bit about the issue of hormone therapy in this woman who you said had not had a menstrual period in 18 months, 49 years old, chemically postmenopausal. In general, if you have a patient where you're absolutely sure, you know, 65 years old, clearly postmenopausal, how are you approaching the choice of hormone therapy in that situation? For the most part, in a woman who is clearly postmenopausal, who does not have a lot of chronic musculoskeletal problems, who has reasonably well-preserved bone density, I am tending to recommend that our first trial of hormonal therapy be an aromatase inhibitor. I really do try to help the women understand that the differences between the two therapies are small. Aromatase tamo- and tamoxifen. Right. The absolute further incremental benefit is small, that what's important is that we find a hormone therapy that she can tolerate and take for five years because that's what helps her. But all things being equal, in a sense, it does look like the aromatase inhibitors are a bit more effective particularly in situations where you have a disease that looks like it could be a bit more aggressive, higher-grade lesion, higher-grade tumor, lower estrogen receptor levels, absent PR levels. Bigger tumor? Larger tumors, yeah. I mean, kind of just generally, the more you're worried about the patient, the more you tend to want to go with that one. So I tend to favor it, but I'm not in the camp at all where the view that, oh, these are superior, tamoxifen has no role those sorts of things at all. 
I think it's interesting you bring up trying to find something the patient can be on for five years because really I've seen a big change in how people view kind of the long-term history of breast cancer in the last five years. I mean, it seems like there's much more sensitivity to what's happening not just later on in the five years, but year five to 10, 10 to 15 and beyond. There's no question the MA17 data has really shown us a lot that long-term hormonal therapy does help control disease. MA17 was basically a study for women who had completed five years of standard tamoxifen, were free of disease, were randomized to letrozole or placebo, and the trial really ended surprisingly early because the effects were seen quickly and the magnitude of the effects that we're seeing were larger than anticipated. So it was sort of a double whammy there that resulted in early closure of the trial. I think maybe, too, the recurrence rates in the untreated patients maybe were a little bit of a surprise. I mean, I think we sort of knew that there were a lot of recurrences in year 5 to 10, but to me, I personally was surprised. You know, I don't think there was that kind of sensitivity that you're looking at 2 to 4% a year recurrences. Mm-hmm. You're looking like now we... we Well, I mean, the the graphs, the studies that had looked at that that justified the trial showed that. I guess maybe we weren't really seeing it and thinking about it. Again, because you're influenced by what you see in your practice, and they don't happen very often. Right. So it's that sort of thing when you go by your practice experience. But I don't think that the rates were really that much higher than the projections no, were. No, I think, I think you're probably the, right. I think you're the effects right. were more marked was the main thing. And then the other interesting thing that they've subsequently published is what happened when patients who had been on placebo crossed that over. That was amazing. Amazing data that even with several years of a break in hormonal therapy, that reinstitution of therapy really drove rates down. So it's really giving a lot of oncologists, I think, a stronger sense that there are hormone-dependent breast cancers that probably are the chronic disease we've always talked about. And this gets back to one of the issues about what should you start a patient with. And I do think that it's going to be good to see the trials. that We have these switching trials done where we're going to be having data from big primarily looking at starting out with letrozole versus a few years of tamoxifen and switching with letrozole. Is there a difference there, particularly... We're starting with letrozole and switching to tamoxifen. Yeah. For the long-term question that maybe for those type of patients who have that more relatively indolent chronic process, transitioning through tamoxifen might actually be better than rushing to an aromatase inhibitor. And we just don't know. I think fortunately there are trials that have finished accruing that we will get information. And I think until we have that information, there's nothing wrong with starting a postmenopausal woman on tamoxifen for several years and transitioning her, particularly if she's got that higher ERPR levels, a little more well-differentiated tumor, perhaps a low recurrence score. So I think it's something that really this is an area that I think we really owe it to our patients to try to individualize right now and as much on the potential toxicity with that long-term view as that acute short-term, you know, well, in the first two years, ATAC showed superiority. What about those patients? You know, we shouldn't risk losing those patients. You hear that argument. I've heard recently a number of people use the analogy to long-term management of follicular lymphoma to ER-positive breast cancer. And Mm -hmm. while, I mean, obviously there's a lot of differences, but, you know, it's kind of, 
sort of similar to what you're talking about, you know, 5, 10, 15-year plan. Well, particularly since we, again, and a lot of it is pulling this stuff together. Now that we're seeing there are hormone receptor positive breast cancer patients where chemotherapy just doesn't seem to have an impact, it really gets to the idea of, well, we want to optimize our hormone therapy in a chronic disease. So are we sure we want to rush past these CIRMs that have been very effective drugs for a long time? And of course, adding to this whole database was the NSABP B33 study, which was kind of similar to the MA17 study looking at, in this case, exomestane after five years of tamoxifen. That was just presented in December 2006 in San Antonio. That was actually an amazing presentation. It was like a really interesting story. I wonder if you could kind of go back through what happened in terms of how you went about doing the study, and then what happened when the MA-17 came out, and then what Terry finally presented, which I think was very interesting stuff. B-33 was, in a sense, a competitor trial for MA-17. It's same design. Women finishing five years of tamoxifen were randomized, in this case, to exomestane or placebo. And the study began accruing for number of reasons substantially later than MA-17. So we were about halfway through our accrual when the MA-17 results were reported. And the Data Monitoring Committee, the NSABP leadership, everybody agreed that with that information, you really couldn't continue to do a placebo-controlled trial ethically wasn't appropriate. So we unblinded our patients, told them if they were getting active exomestane or placebo, they were allowed the option, of course, of taking letrozole if they preferred, since that was the specific aromatase inhibitor that had reported in a sense. They were also offered exomestane if they wanted to continue had they been randomized to that. Placebo, they were also offered if they wished to begin taking it at that point. And we were halfway through our events. We had crossover in easily half of patients. And so we really didn't expect we would see much with that. But we continued to follow patients according to randomization. And when we analyzed according to randomization, we saw benefit from the exomestane, particularly in terms of the recurrence-free survival endpoint which reinforces, I think, the MA-17 results in a big way. And again, also points out that idea that even though there was a break for the women on placebo coming in on active drug, that they're just, the drugs have activity for these patients in the long term. Getting back to the issue of the first five years of therapy, and we'll talk about beyond that, you mentioned that you thought that a reasonable option could be to start tamoxifen and switch reasonable option would be to do the AI the whole five years if the woman can tolerate it. Do you think that five years of tamoxifen deliberately and a woman who, you know, just that's nothing particularly unusual in terms of osteoporosis is an acceptable option at this point? Or do you think a woman really needs an AI during those first five years? Well, I think the IES study and the anastrozole meta-analysis studies really show there clearly is an important benefit to switching. So I do think, in my mind, there has to be a reason not to convert. Again, when I talk to women about the conversion, I try hard not to oversell the need for it because I do find that some women who are doing quite well on tamoxifen have a lot of trouble and they want to go back. So I don't want them to feel like that's a mistake. You've got to do it no matter if you are having symptoms. And most women make the conversion fine. Something that just fascinates me is the very different description that different medical oncologists give 
about how women tolerate the drugs in their practices. I hear some people say, oh, it's a big problem. I stop a lot of drug. Others say, oh, it's a temporary problem. If you work through most patients, you can keep them on it. It's very interesting. Do you think it's mainly the arthralgias is sort of no. what you're dealing with there? Yeah, the, in my practice, my experience is that's the thing that you hear about. They just hurt. And it's a morning stiffness, aching can't get started in the morning kind of a sensation for most women. Other women, though, they say very specifically, my hips hurt, my joints and my hands hurt. So it isn't a pattern. They just hurt somewhere in their bones and soft tissues. Does it tend to improve if you stay on the agent in some cases? As I said, there's some folks who insist that it does. I generally will try to have women stick with it take, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, particularly if it's not severe, but you'll have patients who call and say, I can't move, I can't get out of bed, I'm going to stop this drug, you know, this sort of thing. I guess I'm still guided a little bit by the severity. I think people who are having severe problems, I tend to be less encouraging that they try and write it out. Well, it's kind of tricky, you know, because you see the trials and they have their criteria for reporting. And then, like you say, you talk to docs and they say, oh, yeah, forget the trials. This thing is really a problem. And we've actually polled people on this. And again, just sort of their gut feeling. I'm curious how you would answer this. Roughly, what fraction of women on AIs have problems that really are difficult where you might consider switching or stopping or, you know, that degree of good problem? It's probably... One in eight, one in ten would be my... It's exactly what most oncologists say. It's weird how it's like there's this concentric feeling. And certainly that's very important. But it also tells you there are a lot of people who are tolerating it without a problem. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... I think the other I, let th- me ask you another question. Yeah, sure. I know you do these polls because something that we don't have a lot of information on in the published literature is how younger women tolerate the aromatase inhibitors. I know a lot of because of the availability of the LHRH analogs, people are using that. Premenopausal patients. Yeah, to induce premenopausal women to make them postmenopausal. But when I've done that, my relatively limited experience is they tend to have a lot more problem with it than older women do. That's very interesting. And I didn't know if others had... We never thought to ask that. We have, and just to clarify, of course, for the surgeons listening to this program, you can't use an AI on a premenopausal woman. However, a strategy that's being looked at in clinical trials is, as you say, to make the woman menopausal with an LHRH agonist and then give her an AI. We have no idea if that's going to work or not. It's being studied in a trial. We do know that... Or you get a young woman who has a BRCA mutation right. and has her ovaries out, then there's the immediate right. question, should I give her the right. AI now that I can? And so it's in those situations that you tend to. I think a lot of people do it. But yeah, a lot of people do it, particularly if it's a node-positive mm-hmm. situation, they'll do it. Or you know, maybe a third of oncologists will do it. A lot of people won't, but we've never asked about symptoms. But I guess there, too, if the woman is becoming acutely menopausal, You'd have acute menopause on top of that, and maybe even worse than acute menopause with throwing an AI, but that would be interesting to try to find out. Maybe we can put that in our next survey. You know, you mentioned the issue of the really surprise in the MA-17 study and that the women who were initially randomized to a placebo hadn't had any therapy for, I guess, two, three years, and then started an AI, had this drop in recurrence rate, even though it had been a little bit of a gap. How does that translate to your own non-protocol practice in terms of will you start a patient who's been off tamoxifen for a few years or in an AI? 
I think it's something that where I seeing those patients, you'd have to think about that. I've been in my current practice location five years, so that's something that I haven't seen. But obviously, seeing that data, I think a lot of people are going back and looking at. The problem with it, you know, it wasn't randomized data, it was selected and so on. But the interesting thing about it is the selection should have, you know, worked against seeing the effect. And the effect was so large that it's just old common sense tells you there's got to be something here. I don't know if it's that dramatic, but there is something here. And I think a lot of people are using it. I think you have to talk to patients about it, particularly playing the game of, well, what was their initial risk? What was their prognosis to begin with? The better the initial prognosis, the less certain, but certainly a patient who had positive nodes, who was tolerating medication well, who was stopped in a sense, arbitrarily, because the available data said stop, is somebody that you might want to revisit and share the data with them. I think that approach is exactly what I hear a lot of support for, because we don't know the answer. But at least we can bring it up to the patient and say, you know, there's an issue here. I think the one thing is that when somebody does develop a breast cancer recurrence, I mean, it's a pretty sad event. And for people who then might go back and say, well, wait a second, there was something I could have done. Now, maybe it really wouldn't have made a difference, but he kind of left a stone unturned there, or at least it could have been considered. And we have these sort of meet the professor things that you've been involved with. I know we present cases, and you see a woman who developed a recurrence eight, ten years later who never had an AI, never had it discussed with her. It's kind of, you know, sort of a little bit sad, and you want patients at least kind of know that it's a possibility. Sure. And I think that kind of informed approach And again, sort of focusing back on the surgeon, I wonder, can you make the argument that if a surgeon seeing a patient who's had an ER-positive tumor, seeing for routine follow-up, I don't know sort of what the date would be or how many years since diagnosis, but I think the patient not having had an AI might bring sort of a little bit of a red flag out on the chart. I think it's a reasonable question for a surgeon who continues to follow his or her breast cancer patients, you know, for years out like that, that would, it's not an unreasonable question for them to ask. Because a lot of times the problem that you get into with some patients is they stop seeing the medical oncologist when they stop the drugs. They may not even be getting back in to a medical oncologist to have the discussion. And we'd like to think if they are, the medical oncologist will always discuss it. But even if you throw that out, I guess in our practice, we do try to, what I call, consolidate the physician's When you stop hormone therapy at five years, patients oftentimes have kind of evolved a preference who they like they see. And I think the important thing is they see somebody who's knowledgeable about breast cancer. And this is a case where I think it's useful for breast surgeons to be aware of the data if they are the only one following long term, that that's something they might think about revisiting with the patients. Another really important issue, and one of the most common questions that we hear in breast cancer practice is, what do I do with a patient who's been on an AI for five years? Do I continue or not? And there are a lot of those people coming up nowadays because this all started at the end of 2001. So there's this huge wave of people hitting five years. And of course, the NSABP is addressing that head on with the B42 trial. Can you talk about that study? Yeah, the B42 trial is a trial that will randomize women who have finished five years of hormonal therapy consisting either of five years of an AI or up to three years of tamoxifen followed by conversion to an AI. When they hit that five-year mark, then they're randomized to Letrozole, in this case, this is the aromatase inhibitor that we're using for this trial, versus placebo for five years. 
So it recapitulates B33MA17. The design is the same. It's just a different patient population. These are patients who have had substantial treatment with aromatase inhibitors. What do we know about the optimal duration of aromatase inhibitors, either clinically or from laboratory models? And where did the five years come from? Is it just taken from tamoxifen sort of arbitrarily? Yes. The five years of tamoxifen was the standard. So ATAC, big, they set up the study randomized against the tamoxifen standard. And, you know, the standard of five years tamoxifen came largely from the re-randomization on B14, which clearly indicated that women in that study, women who had finished five years of tamoxifen were randomized to placebo or to continue tamoxifen. And relatively early on, after a few years of the trial, it was halted because the women who were continuing tamoxifen seemed to be having higher recurrence rates than the women who weren't. And there was some preclinical basis for that. I mean, when you have a drug like tamoxifen, a CIRM, selective ER modulator, if the ER and the co-inhibitors, co-activator things change, clearly we know that tamoxifen has a differential effect in bone than it does in breast cancer. So it's not a surprise that if a cancer cell survived in a tamoxifen environment for five years, it might start reading tamoxifen like it is an estrogen. And the data seemed to support that. There was some preclinical data suggesting that might be the case. Here was the clinical data, so it was shut off. Interestingly, randomized studies, large randomized studies, the ATLAS trial and the ATOM trial over in Europe have continued to accrue, and that's 5 versus 10. And their DMCs have never shut those studies down. So the tamoxifen question is a closed one, but those trials are out there. They apparently haven't seen the same adverse effect we saw, so it will be interesting to see where that comes to. But clearly, I think one has to say, well, with the five, yeah, it was arbitrary, but the way we developed tamoxifen was arbitrary. We did it for a year. It worked a little bit. Two was better than one. Five was better than two. When we tried to go beyond five, it looked like we had reached the point. So I think the same process needs to unfold with the aromatase inhibitors. What do you do in your own practice in patients who are not eligible to go into the B42 studies, a patient who's getting to their fifth year, completed their fifth year of an aromatase inhibitor, doing well, doesn't have the problem with arthralgias? Do you ever continue therapy beyond five years outside of a trial? The placebo arm in 42 is, in a sense, standard of care, so patients should be stopped. There is one group where I think Honestly, in my mind, there is some question of the patients who have taken the tamoxifen for a couple years, so they've not yet had five years of the AI. There are some folks who argue that, well, those patients ought to at least get the five years of the AI. We don't know. That's an opinion. I think you can certainly make a valid argument for that approach, but I think it's also justifiable to say, well, that's, there's no data. Why do that? What do we know about long-term safety of going beyond five years with an aromatase inhibitor? And one of the big concerns, you mentioned sort of quality of life issue in terms of the arthralgias, but is bone. Now, of course, the original studies didn't sort of take that into account. They didn't monitor bone. They didn't use bisphosphonase, which is kind of what people are doing now. In general, do you think that five years of an aromatase inhibitor is safe in terms of the bones with that type of approach or any other long-term issues you're concerned about? I think when you use the bisphosphonate, you have to be monitoring bone density and addressing it. The bisphosphonates, at an expense, there is the osteonecrosis of the jaw issue that the longer a woman's on a bisphosphonate, to me, that's a huge question. 
that you don't really hear anybody addressing is how long do you continue one of these drugs once you start it? Do you just keep it going? Do you give them holidays? We know that they have a very, very long period in the bone. Once it's in the bone, it's there for a long time. So those questions are out there. But so far, it looks like the early years provide the greatest relative reduction in bone density, and then it does seem to slow even in the absence of the bisphosphonates from some of the ATAC data. So I think it's, again, one of those situations where if you're getting to five years and you're seeing somebody's bone density dropping off in spite of bisphosphonates, it gets very hard to me to justify that. But the patient you described, she's sailing on it. For me, it's hard to argue. You know, there is the theoretical concern about the long-term toxicities, but if you're not seeing things between years four and five, can you really use that as a strong argument for stopping? I don't think so. To me, it's mainly the efficacy. You need to see efficacy. You need to see so you can get some idea of benefits for the cost. And then could there be toxicity? Could you see something begin after seven, eight years that we've just not seen? It's possible. And if you don't do the trials, you have no opportunity to catch that sort of unexpected problem. We've seen a little bit more openness to continuing beyond five years in a non-protocol setting in our studies, but mainly in the higher-risk patients, node-positive patients, it seems to be where people are thinking about considering this. Let's get back to this patient, because we talked before about the fact that in patients clearly preanopausal, most common therapy is going to be five years of tamoxifen. And as we talked about their trials, looking at ovarian suppression, adding in tamoxifen, adding in an AI, et cetera, et cetera. But there's and a those lot. are actually accruing. The soft study is now a third of the way through accrual. So those are actually moving forward. We may get an answer. There's enough people who are randomizing and not just treating, which is encouraging. That's awesome. In the beginning, I wasn't so sure. It looked like there was some inertia there. Mm-hmm. And there's a really important questions, but also in terms of, I guess, one of the biggest areas of controversy is really very similar to your patient, the perimenopausal mm-hmm. patient. Now, in this case, this woman has not had a period. She's 49, so she's a little bit younger than you might expect for natural menopause, but chemically menopausal. What did you do in her situation? In her case, because she had been 18 months, personally, I'm very uncomfortable about using aromatase inhibitors if somebody has not been amenorrheic for at least a year. I'm comfortable when they're beyond two years in between I individualize, and she's right smack in the middle there. The thing in her situation was with her history of the thromboembolism and symptomatic ischemic events that happily didn't leave her with any permanent deficits and her decision not to take chemotherapy. We talked about it and decided to go ahead and start her on the aromatase inhibitor, but I'm going to watch her estradiol levels closer than what I normally would so that if it looks like the aromatase inhibitors are inducing return of ovarian function, we'll at least recognize it. And can you talk about how that history of the TIAs relates to this decision specifically in terms of tamoxifen versus an AI? Well, tamoxifen clearly does have a small but real increased risk of thrombosis. It's primarily on the venous side, but there is also a slight uptick on the arterial side. And in a patient who has already done that, you know, it's one of those, I don't know, there's a lot of data out there because most people, I think, do exactly what I'm doing here. They don't go there if there's an alternative. And she clearly said, no way, if she's already had a stroke to take a drug that might increase that. So 
in her case, it would be, you could say, well, why don't you give her an LHRH? But the problem with her with doing that is if you start her on that, what's going to be your end point? When do you stop giving her these injections? How do you know they're even necessary at all? So that's the approach that we took. And when we were talking before about her and chemotherapy, we didn't bring up the issue of chemotherapy in the prior TIA. Any issue there? No, I don't think it does. And again, with the broadly use of chemotherapy, does seem to just have this slight risk associated with it. But it tends to be in patients who, it tends to be more venous and patients who have clearly pre-existing disease. I mean, I would tell her about that risk, were I going to use chemotherapy, had she had a high recurrence score. If you might say, well, there is a small risk, it's swamped by the benefits of the therapy. So you acknowledge it and move on like we've always done with leukemia and the cardiotoxicities. What about selection of an AI? Like in this woman, which AI did she receive? Generally speaking... I kind of mirror the trials. So when I do an upfront aromatase inhibitor, I'll use an astrazole or letrozole since those were the studies. I gave her an astrazole. Again, I tended to go with that one because it's got the longest follow-up and the most data. I have seen something that I have done that I've asked other medical oncologists about if they had seen was I always worry a little bit about these medications that are fixed doses in very large obese women. And so I have checked estradiol levels in women who go on aromatase inhibitors. And I occasionally have found patients where the anastrozole didn't seem to drop their hormone level. And you put them on letrozole? And so I put them on letrozole. Letrozole is more potent. There's always been the argument about, well, the potency doesn't seem to matter. But in a couple of those patients, then when I did that... Interesting. These were obese women? Yeah, very, you know, BSA 2.4, 2.5. Very, very large. Fascinating. And I just had another, just a big woman. I mean, she was just large, and she did the same thing. Interesting. I haven't heard that. And others said they haven't thought about it or checked it, so I've not seen it anywhere. Interesting. The last thing I want to ask you about, just sort of as an FYI, because it really doesn't relate to this particular case, but it's just such an important story, and you and your integral role in the NSAVP is so involved with this is the adjuvant trastuzumab story and what's happened over the last couple of years. And I wonder if you could just sort of capsulize, again, for a surgeon who doesn't need to kind of get into every single detail, the bottom line in terms of where we are right now with adjuvant trastuzumab in patients with HER2-positive tumors. Sure. There were basically four large adjuvant studies that were initiated to see if adding trastuzumab to chemotherapy could improve the outcome for women with HER2-positive breast cancer. And the majority of the studies, three of them, basically chose to keep anthracyclines as part of the program because we do have evidence that when you use chemotherapy and you have HER2-positive breast cancer, anthracyclines are important. But we also know that when you use trastuzumab in proximity to anthracyclines, you run into cardiotoxicity. So it was very challenging in these initial studies to move forward with trials that basically gave the women some amount of an anthracycline, then began the trastuzumab with chemotherapy. But that's how the bulk of the studies proceeded. One trial done by the CIRG included 
that basic approach, but they also then had a regimen based on work that Denny Slayman had done in his group, basically omitting an anthracycline, which was really a major step to take. But that 006 study had that arm. And what we've seen basically is across these trials, when you give women trastuzumab with chemotherapy, they have a substantial reduction in their risk for recurrence very, very quickly. All these trials, again, reported earlier because the effects were bigger than what we were looking for events were a bit higher. So there's been a striking consistency of benefit when you add the trastuzumab, almost making it seem like the nuances of chemotherapy now don't matter as much. Medical oncologists really like to argue and worry about those nuances. And in the absence of trastuzumab, they can be very important. But it's looking like with trastuzumab now, that may be going away. And the non-anthracycline regimen TCH, taxotere carboplatin, herceptin, or trastuzumab results are on the same order of magnitude as all the others and clearly substantially reduce the risk of cardiotoxicity. So, Would you go along with the number of overall roughly about 50% reduction in relapse rate across all these trials? 40 to 50% I think is more accurate at this point because with the HERA update and the CIRG updates, the hazards have moved up to about 06 Well, the other thing is, and again, from the point of view of the surgeons looking at this, because as you mentioned, there's this big controversy about the anthracyclines, and that really relates to cardiac issues. I mean, you see heart failure with chemotherapy and trastuzumab. It's not that common, but it's not rare. I mean, what would the number be that you would give to a woman, 60, 65-year-old healthy woman, of a risk of actual clinical heart failure? I guess the message that we're trying to get out right now is that there really is not a single number that should be given to all women. We think there are simple things that one can use, age, baseline ejection fraction, history of hypertension that can help at least not individualized risk, but put women into groups with differing risks. Overall, on our trial, the B31 study, we had 4% of women who started trastuzumab develop class 3 or 4 heart failure. The North Central had a similar number, about 3.5%. Dr. Schleiman's group, using taxotere instead of paclitaxel, had a number of about 2%. So I think the number is kind of 2 to 4%. And what's the natural history once it occurs? Well, the encouraging thing about it is that, as is the case with metastatic disease, with treatment, women do tend to, first of all, become asymptomatic and begin to have improvement in their ejection fractions relatively quickly. And we do see that many women have normalization of their ejection fractions, but not all. There are some women who continue to have ejection fractions in the 40s, a few less than that. These women frequently do pick up then the need for chronic medication. And of course, we don't have How will the women do who have this problem? What will happen to them 10, 15 years down the road? The information we have now is basically with roughly five years of follow-up. One of the biggest controversies right now, and this has been great news, unfortunately it's only 20% of breast cancer, but still those women have this dramatic drop in relapse rate is wonderful. But one of the big areas of controversy is the smaller node-negative or two-positive tumors, particularly around a centimeter less, a little bit more. What's your approach in a non-protocol setting to those patients? 
Well, I guess I tend to be on this one driven a little bit more by the notion of the biology and the idea that if this drug can reduce relative risk by 50%, I don't need much residual risk to still think it's worth giving to a patient. A woman who has a 10% chance of recurrence does have a good prognosis, but if she can be given her septin and have that cut in half, again, we're talking because the relative impact of the drug is so large, it means substantial absolute improvements. And so I tend to be less conservative in my application, I think, of trastuzumab than some people are. Because if you look at the, and again, Dr. Schleiman's data, the 006 data that we just heard at San Antonio, the update, showed the node-negative patient population. A third of their patients were node-negative. They really had very broad inclusion criteria for their node-negative patients. Any woman under 35, ERPR negative, any size, grade 2 or 3, any size. Yeah, I mean, they had undersonometer in that trial. Yeah, and they basically were... Their criteria came from the St. Galen overview. They just plugged them in. So they included those patients. And what they showed were a couple things that were kind of interesting to me. First of all, the chemotherapy actually worked pretty well. We had heard that node-negative, HER2-positive breast cancer patients have a high risk, but their four- or five-year disease-free survival was 86%. But The striking thing was, even though they didn't have much residual risk, only 14%, a substantive reduction. I mean, for them, there was like a 60% reduction in risk. So it helped those women. There were also some reports at San Antonio from tumor registries and so on, different things, reporting on HER2-positive small breast cancers, where it showed those breast cancers long-term do have 10 years, T1 tumors have a 25% recurrence rate. So it's hard for me to just arbitrarily stop it, given the efficacy and the safety, particularly when you eliminate the anthracycline. I think you have to eliminate the anthracycline there. So you're more likely to use a non-anthracycline regimen in those patients. Yes. You mentioned earlier about this issue of ER positivity or response to hormone therapy with a high recurrence score, still ER positive. What about the HER2 positive, ER positive tumors? I mean, that's still about 50% of the patients in this trial had the ER was positive. What do we, again, know about sort of how effective and how much we can depend upon hormone therapy in those patients? When you look at the B31 data set, patients who were ER positive, HER2 positive, don't have quite the recurrence rates that the ER negative, HER2 positive have. So it's still, the group seems to do a bit better than its ER negative counterpart. Interestingly, all the patients in the adjuvant trials, for the most part, that have reported were still getting tamoxifen. And we see really very, very good outcomes. So I think hormone therapy remains important for them. It's probably factoring in, but I view it as the secondary target, not the primary target. Thinking about your patient again, a 49-year-old woman, it's interesting to speculate how different things would have been if her tumor were HER2 positive, and particularly, again, one centimeter, particularly in terms of her thoughts about chemotherapy. And that really brings up the issue, because I have a feeling you would have gotten into this discussion with her, of what about trastuzumab without chemotherapy? The trastuzumab clearly is active as a single agent in 
HER2 amplified patients. Vogel study clearly shows a very impressive response rate, 25, 26%, even higher, 34% or so for the fish amplified. That's in metastatic disease. Metastatic disease. But, you know, that is less than what you get by combining chemotherapy. And some of the work that Soon Paik has done with our B31 set suggests that there are probably patients that the combination is particularly important for them. So I tend to use it, recommend it concurrently. Now, if I have a patient who just says, absolutely no, I won't take it, would I do it? Sure. Some therapy is better than no therapy.